it is great to be here. This is my first time in Turkey, and um, I've, I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, one of the things I was excited about coming to Turkey, because back in the 90s, people from my city would come to Turkey to buy new track suits. You know, jumpsuits? We call them trackies in Liverpool. And uh, I was quite excited to get my Sergio Toshini trackie. People used to come here, Kerem, just to buy clothes, to bring back to Liverpool, to sell to all the Scousers. So I was excited to get myself some new clothes. But unfortunately, Kerem hasn't taken me anywhere where I can buy them. Just these, like, ruins, which were... I couldn't find any shops anywhere. That was, a, that was the problem. No, it is great to be here. What a privilege uh, to be amongst you Guys, I'm going to be looking from Colossians 2, so if you turn in your Bibles, we'll read that together, and then we'll get stuck in together. Let's read Colossians 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. A reference to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that it will be your voice that we hear. And we pray these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When I arrive home um, tomorrow night, I will be waking up on Friday to my eldest daughter's 17th birthday. I feel really old that my eldest daughter is 17. I know I don't look that old to have a 17-year-old. 
But 17 is, is a big, big birthday if you are brought up in the UK. Because when you're 17, it means that you are now able to drive a car. So Ella is expecting that she's going to be receiving driving lessons as she turns to this momentous day. Now, when Ella begins to drive a car, everything's going to change for her. Her level of independence is going to grow. A level of freedom is going to be there. And not only does it change for Ella, it also changes for Sean and I. Because that means that Ella now will have to, because it's the law in our house from Friday, she will have to pick up all the siblings from all the late night pickups. No longer. I could retire as a taxi driver and pass that mantle over to my eldest daughter. But it's interesting as I think about these things and as I allow my head to go to the wonderful advantages of what it is to have my eldest daughter now driving a car, my mind also goes to the, all the potential dangers that learning to drive and having a license puts my little girl in. It's like when she was learning how to walk and unfortunately my daughter because of illness has had to learn how to walk on three occasions in her short life. And if any of you have got kids, remember when the excitement of your children taking those first steps unaided was then very quickly overshadowed with the potential issues and dangers all around. What they could grab, what they could see. Just a bit of gust of wind and it would push them over. A little stumble and they would knock to the floor. I like walking. If she is not aware of all the potential hazards, if, if she does not drive her car correctly, if she is not observant to what is around her, see, the smallest of hazards could turn out to be disastrous. See, what is interesting in this passage is that in a similar way, this is what Paul wants for the new Christians in Colossae. Obviously, this has nothing to do with them driving vehicles, but he is concerned regarding how they grow and how they mature as Christians in light of the reality that they find themselves. In light of all the potential hazards and issues that they have to face in the reality of what it is to be a Christian in Colossae. See, we've already seen that he is greatly encouraged because of their faith, chapter 1, verse 7. We've seen that he is praying that they will walk and live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And his hope is that they will grow, verse 10 of chapter 1. And as new Gentile Christians, his hope is that they would truly know the wonder and the mystery of having Christ in them, which is the hope of glory, which had been hidden from them for generations and generations, verse 27 of chapter 1. And it's for this reason we saw yesterday. It's for this reason that Paul toils, chapter 1, verse 29. It's for this reason why he struggles with all the energy that Christ gives him and powerfully works through him, so that they, as new believers, will mature in Christ and that their hearts may be encouraged. See, his toil and his struggle is in the context of a hope that their hearts will be knit together, not only with his, but with each other, verse 2 of chapter 2. And this love together would grow a deep and full understanding and knowledge of God that would reach the riches of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Folks, Paul is toiling, we heard yesterday. Paul is struggling so that the Christians in Colossae and Laodicea have a strong affection and a strong understanding of Christ and each other in order that, verse 4 of chapter 2, 
no one may delude them with plausible arguments. In order that the hazards that they will face as they live as Christian will not turn out to be disastrous. I've been in full-time Christian ministry for nearly 20 years. And I could share story after story where people have been misled by plausible arguments that are presented in the culture at a specific time in the culture which has affected the walk in Jesus that these people have and at the worst cases they have walked completely away from him. Completely away from him. See folks, a maturing in Christ is growing in an understanding of who he is and what he has done. It's growing in an understanding of his supremacy, that he is over all, that he is in all, that he is above all. And it's also growing in an understanding that he is enough. He is sufficient. And an understanding of what it means to know his supremacy and to know that he is enough in the context of the reality that we find ourselves in. As I grew up as a kid, my parents were Christians, first-generation Christians, and they were trying to figure out what that looked like to live. And then when they had kids, that just tightened it. And for many years as a kid, we were just battened away from the will. We were told that Christ was supreme. We were told that he was sufficient, but we had no grid and context of what that meant in the reality of all the plausible arguments, all the hazards that life brings. And it's by the grace of God that all of my brothers and sisters and who they're married to now know Jesus and walk with him. See, folks, a maturing in Christ is growing and understanding who he is, what he's done in the reality of where we find it. That's why Paul says to them, therefore, verse 6 of chapter 2. Therefore, let's get back to the foundation of what you first believed. Let's get back to that. See, it's not something new. It's not some other plausible argument. It's not some fancy theological grid. No, in order for you to navigate through the issues that you are facing as a Christian, let's get back to the gospel that first captured your heart. So let's see what that looks like for the Christians in Colossae and what it looks like for us. So number one, let's hold fast to the gospel that first captured your heart. Therefore, as you receive Christ in him, walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See, folks, the issues facing the church in Colossae was a matter of their maturity in Christ. That was the issue. Were they maturing in him? But the issue was this. It was whether or not they were maturing in him was determined not according to the gospel, but according to the cultural pressures, both outside of the church and inside of the church. See, there was a cultural pressure of Jesus now just being one of the pantheon gods that all the people in Colossians worshipped. See, these new Christians had grown up in a world where there were many, many gods with Caesar being the head. And the cultural religion and practices would have been ingrained in, in how they think and how they engaged. And this spiritualization, this mysticism, and this was merged into their faith. We see that in verse 8. We see that in verse 18. And it felt plausible and right, given that this is what they knew culturally. Surely you need to engage in some spiritual element other than just having faith in the Lord Jesus. Something, it, surely it needed something else. 
See, the other pressure that they were feeling was from the new Jewish Christian community. And they were pressurizing these new Gentile Christians to follow the laws of the Torah in order to have completeness in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were under pressure to follow the observances like a kosher diet and keeping the Sabbath and being circumcised, verse 16. Surely you need something in form of religious observance and practice when you put your faith in Christ. And for these new Christians, both could and would have been plausible. But Paul's toil and struggle is that they see that their maturing and encouragement will not come from either of these two cultural pressures and wrong teachings, but rather walking and living in Christ the way they had first received him. Paul is saying, It's a maturing in Christ and the gospel message that you first receive that will ensure that you are not deluded by these plausible arguments. Folks, we were reminded yesterday, weren't you, that for the Colossians, it was through hearing the word of the gospel through the faithful minister Epaphras. And they came to faith in Jesus. And their maturing and encouragement and love for him will only come if they continue to walk by the same faith And live by the same faith that they received right at the beginning. See, when they received Christ as Lord, as Christians in Colossae, they came to realize that Caesar no longer was Lord, but Jesus Christ was Lord. When they received Christ, they received him hearing the gospel that proclaimed that the law only being a shadow doesn't fulfill Christ's work, but that Christ being the substance fulfills the law. See, folks, the cultural pressures inside and outside of the church and the pressures on our people are enormous and our folks and we also are being bombarded from all sorts of angles with plausible arguments and philosophies of our culture and our our age and as someone who's ministering in the UK the big issue for us is the self-therapeutic nature of our culture The self-therapeutic desire and idea of what it is to flourish as people. Making sure we have balance. Making sure we have me time. Self-esteem, self-actualization has totally overshadowed issues of sacrifice, selflessness, servanthood that that gospel maturity develops. Issues of virtue are determined by your social media updates rather than the substance of how you live for Jesus in the reality of our culture. And this new religion, this new religion of our modern society in my context has become the grid by which people live for Jesus. Yes, follow Christ, but do it in a way that enables you to be happy. Do it in a way that enables you to reach your goals. In a way that does not make you feel uncomfortable. And the issue is for us, those of us who are pastors, is the massive temptation for us to shape our ministries around this therapeutical way of following Jesus. Why? Because it makes it easier in pastoral situations and potentially we can have fuller churches because we just tickle the ears and we just add to what is being bombarded left, right, and center. But folks, also, however, the pressure and temptation in contrast and response to this is that we become accidental Pharisees. And we need a yeah, pendulum swing, finding ourselves advocating and promoting and even creating our own traditions and constructs that become the barometer of people's maturity in Christ. And we lead and preach law and not grace. Massive pressure for us. 
Paul says, walk in him. <laughs> Paul says, live in him. Live in a way that you have received Christ and hold fast to the gospel that first captured your heart. Folks, a life that is walking in Christ is a life that is faithful to him. It's a life that is lived with a daily recognition of our need and dependence on him. The need of his grace. It's a posture of knowing that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not as some theological construct, but as the beautiful, powerful good news that first took hold of our affections. See, I think we add to our walk with Jesus either culturally or, or with religious things because we have lost the wonder of the love and grace of God that captured us when we first came to him. And even as pastors, I think we lose the wonder of what it is and even shape our ministries to make it easier for people rather than just pointing them back to the wonder of the gospel that first passed, captured people's hearts. See, walking in Him is a life that is lived out with short accounts with Him. I've been married for 23 years to my wife. And I walk with her. Yes, physically, but I live with her. And one of the things that helps that and grows that is that we have short accounts. I need her, she needs me, we need each other, our kids need us. We have a union together, the short accounts. Folks, part of maturing and walking with Christ is every day saying, I need you. I need you. I don't need to know more about you. Yes, I do, but I need you. I need you. It's a life of deepening intimacy with Christ. See, my question, and I'm not going to answer this, but for you is, what does that look like for us as church leaders? What does that look like for us as pastors? Are we growing in our intimacy with Jesus or are we more bent on growing in our knowledge about Jesus? I was chatting to Keo before from Ivory Coast and Philip came over and said to me, it's really good knowing about Keo, but it's even better knowing him. And that's so true and it's the same for Jesus. We walk with him when we get to know him, not just about him. Do you keep short accounts with him? Folks, what does it look like for us to toil and struggle for our people? And not only for our people, but before our people. Being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you were taught. Paul uses this analogy of being rooted and built up. It's the roots of a tree and it's the stability of a big structure. I, I, my house is quite a big house and has really, really thick walls. And next to our house, there's a big old oak tree. And where the oak tree is positioned, that the roots are actually pushing down the walls of the perimeter of our house. And you can see the roots, the thickness of the roots, and they're going deep and they're going deep. And there's this, there was, there was, we cut it down, sadly. But there was this massive oak tree. It was enormous. And the wind would come, everything would move around it, but nothing would move the tree. And we have cut it down, but we can't get the roots out of the ground because they are so deep and they are so embedded into the ground. So I've got this oak tree and next to our house, it's a, an old house built in 1800 and something, not as old as the buildings yesterday, but getting on to being old. And, and the walls are so thick that when we wanted to put cable 
in, in so we could watch the TV. We had to get by a drill bit, which was about this big, just to get through the walls. Nothing was going to penetrate because the stability of the structure was enormous. And Paul is saying, in order to walk with him, in order to mature, your roots need to go deep so that your structure in life can be strong. Can be strong. And it's a deepening of roots that go further down into the mystery of our salvation that will hold us firm when earthly tremors of life and ministry shakes us. And it's those roots that go deep they are to go deep into this treasure. And we will mature and grow up and we will be a people who are stable, steadfast. We will be the living stones built upon him who is the cornerstone, Jesus. And we will be established in the faith, established in the truth of the gospel that was taught to us. Folks, it's so interesting that Paul says being established in the truth. It's not just being established in your walk with Jesus. It's being established in the truth because it is the truth of the gospel that is under attack here in Colossae. It is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. It is the word of God that these philosophies and false teachings are waging war against. And Paul is saying, yes, have your roots deep so you are built up so that you are established in the faith. Because it's the faith that is under attack. See, Paul says, become established in the gospel. And in order to become established in the gospel, your roots need to go deep so that you can grow and stand tall and live for him. Again, the question is, what does this look like? What does this look like for us? What does it look like in our walk? And what does this look like in our ministry? What does it look like to grow deep? Folks, it's to grow deep in what you know and who you know. Later on today, we're going to hear from chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, Seek those things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your affections on things above, not on things upon the earth. Set your affections there. Don't give a hearing to any rival teaching. Set all your affections, all your hopes on him who is above all at the right hand of, of God. And think through the wonder of the gospel that means that he's there and means that you are there as well. One of the relationships that I love in the Bible studying is the relationship between Paul and Timothy. I love that. Just the way Paul interacts with Timothy and Timothy interacts with Paul. And in 2 Timothy, do you remember when Paul is writing to him and, he, and he's explaining? And what does he do? He reminds Timothy of how the gospel first captured his heart. It came from his grandmother. It came through his mother. And as he is walking through, as he's saying, he's saying, let's fan into flame. Fan into flame the gift of God. So we're not sure exactly what that gift is, but I think ultimately it's the gift of the gospel that's been given to him. Fan that into flame. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of him as a prisoner. See, God has called you, Timothy, to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gives us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, in the context of this older Christian and younger Christian, this older minister and this new younger minister, how does he say, this is what it looks like to lead. This is what it looks like to pastor in the reality that you'll find yourselves in. Fan into flame the gospel that first captured your heart. Hold fast to the truth. 
of this holy calling that God has called you to, to one, to be a believer and a follower of the Lord Jesus, but also to be a minister that he gave you. Nothing through what you've done. That's what it looks like, folks. Fan into flame. Fan into flame the wonders of the gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, that's not something that you would expect to be maybe quoted at a conference like this, but I'm telling you, that fans my faith into flame. Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me. He loves me because the Bible tells me. And then he goes on, doesn't he, in 2 Timothy. He says, as a minister, present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Ties in with what Colossians 1.25, make the word fully known. Make the word fully known. So as those of us who are Christians seeking to live for him, fan into flame, be established in that. But those of us who are pastors, make the word of God fully known. Handle the word of truth correctly for our people so that they are established in the faith. We had Ray and Janie Ortland in Liverpool with us a few weeks ago. And if you don't know Ray and Janie Ortland, if you're able to, to engage with them, they are amazing. People in their 70s who are truly finishing well for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I asked him to speak to us and said, what does it look like to finish well? We want to stand firm and preach the gospel. And he took us to this verse in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2 verse 7, he says this. The Paul writes to Timothy and says, think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's a promise, he said. Think over what I say, the word of God, and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. See, folks, being established in the truth of the gospel, standing firm as a minister is preaching the word of God. But our steadfastness doesn't come from the preaching. It comes from roots going deep and thinking over the gospel truth and listening to the Lord as he gives understanding. I think sometimes we are too quick to preach. And we preach from roots that are too shallow and structures that are too vulnerable. Because we seek our strength from something other than Christ. Which is a failure to steward the word well for our people see let's go deep with our roots and the promises that we will be built, built up in and established in the truth and toil for the sake of our people can i give you a task today not now but when you go home in light of reading the word of god and holding on to the promise that he will give us understanding in his word can i encourage you maybe on the plane home or the drive home or wherever you are, read through the beautiful poem in Colossians 1 that we had preached for us yesterday. And take every section. He is the image of the invisible God and sit in it. And ask the Lord to give you understanding. Ask the Lord to open up and allow the roots of the wonder of the gospel just from what we read there to penetrate deep. And I'm telling you, it will fan into flame the wonderful faith that captured your heart right at the beginning. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, nonstop gratitude. 
This means constantly thank, being thankful for him, constantly being grateful for him. Our intimacy with Jesus will deepen as it produces further gratitude as we grow in him. At Cornerstone, before every single elders meeting, we spend time going around the room asking each of the elders to give an evidence of God's grace. An evidence of God's grace that leads us to gratitude. And sometimes that takes 45 minutes, that takes an hour. And the people who are in our eldership are all about hitting the agenda and getting all the points done and everything. They, they initially freak out, but by the end of that time, their hearts are stirred for the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they're presented with the evidences of his grace. Because God's people are growing and being established in the truth and they want to thank him. Folks, as we grow in the knowledge of God's grace, as we open our eyes to see it everywhere, it humbles us. See, gratitude is the clothing of humility and it is the completion of encouragement. See, humility comes hand in hand with gratitude. Humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God brings a posture of thanksgiving as we are captured again by the grace of God towards us. It humbles us and as we respond in thankfulness, we are encouraged. See, folks, a lack, of, a lack of gratitude and a lack of thankfulness leads to a heart and an attitude of entitlement, which is the devil's playground. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. They became entitled. They listened to the lie. They got sucked in to the plausible, plausible points that the evil one was given to them. See, a lack of gratitude for Christ takes our eyes off him and onto ourselves, which makes us vulnerable to the philosophies and ideologies of our age that are seeking to take us captive. John Piper, speaking about abandoning thanksgiving, says this, that gratitude is the guardian of the soul. And I think gratitude, and what Paul is talking about here, is connected, this abandoning thanksgiving is connected to how we pray. See, later on, we're going to hear verse 2 of chapter 4, that we are to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. See, our prayers are to be steadfast, given in thanksgiving, but we are also to be watchful. See, when we are thankful to someone, we want to tell them, we want to thank them, we want to respond in appreciation. And Paul is saying, as we live in Christ, abound in thanksgiving which is connected to prayer so praying to him thanking him beseeching him trusting in him asking him to be gracious again see folks to mature in christ is to walk with him to have to be rooted in him to be established in what we were taught and to be constantly thanking him and that issue of gratitude will guard our souls against all the plausible arguments that bombarders as Christians and also bombarders of bombarders as ministers of the gospel. See, folks, I think this is a word as church planters we need to hear. See, so often we can see the issues, the problems, and we miss the evidence of His grace. And in light of the issues and the promises, problems, we try and manufacture the seasons and moments, and we expect God to move when we want Him to. And all this does is lead to entitlement. See, gratitude for who we are in Christ enables us to live and walk in Him. Moves us to want to know His wisdom and knowledge. It protects us from being robbed of the joy of being out on the ocean of His grace and not enjoying that. 
even when the waves that we think should be swelling up are not swelling up. It's a type of prayer that guards our heart in Christ, that causes us to grow and mature in Him, but it's a lack of thanksgiving and prayer that makes us vulnerable. And it's this vulnerability, this lack of thanksgiving, if we don't have it, will trickle into the culture of our church. See, Paul is thankful and rejoicing over them even when they are struggling. Even when some are wrestling with the reality of life because the primary source of his thanksgiving is Christ and his grace. My question to you, what are the evidence of God's grace in your life and ministry? Write them down and be thankful for, for that. Be thankful for that. Hold fast to the gospel that first captured your heart. Number two, don't be trapped by what others say and think. Verse 8, verse 16, verse 18. See, Paul wants them to mature and grow in the truth because a knowledge and a maturing and a growth of the truth of the gospel will enable them to not be taken captive and will enable them to see that they are not disqualified and are not second-rate believers because they're not falling in line with all the ceremonial laws and sacrifices. See, we see verse there, verse 8, don't be taken captive. This is a strong warning. These empty philosophies that are shaped by human thought and elemental spirits, demonic works are there to distort the truth of the gospel, which is the person and work of Jesus. See, Paul uses the phrase philosophies. What he's saying is it is the philosophy of the day. It is the good news of the day, the truth of the day that comes from human tradition that has demonic forces underneath to guide people away from the truth of the gospel. I'd love to start fishing, right? I'd love to start fishing. There's something about fishing that I'd love. But the type of fishing that I'm interested in is fly fishing. Do you know what fly fishing is? There's people, they wear like these big wader things and they go into the water and they get their rod and they hold the rod and they, they have this beautiful like sort of action like this like this and what happens is the line flies like this and there's a fly on the end a fake fly and as they do this the fake fly bounces on the water it bounces up and down on the water and as it bounces up and down on the water all the fish are captured by it and they see and it looks real it looks plausible it's acting like a fly would. It hit the water, then it come up. It hit the water, then a couple. It hit the water. A fish would take a snap, and it's got you. Paul is saying, don't be trapped. Don't be captured. Paul is saying, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. See, the false teachers, verse 16, the false teachers were advocating a number of Jewish observances as being essential to walking with Jesus. See, the weight of their opinion and judgment was enough for them to miss the truth of the gospel, which would lead them to living life in the shadows, not life in the midst of the substance of Christ. My little girl, Lily, when she was little, she used to jump into bed with Sean and I, and she used to love, I put my lamp on at the side of the bed, and she used to love me making like, you know, puppets with, 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 um, with shadow puppets with the hands like a little dog, and all, a terrible looking dog. But anyway, I'd tell it was a dog or a bunny and she'd be like, oh, do it again, do it again. And I'd be there for eight, ages, just do it, do it again, dad, this is great, this is great. Then I'd turn the light off and we'd put the big light on and she'd be upset. Because in that moment, all she wanted was the shadow. She didn't really want the substance of the reality that was, 
the shadows were pointing to. She didn't want that. See, Paul is saying, don't be captured in the shadows, but embrace the substance that is Christ. And he says, let no one disqualify you, verse 18. See, these false teachers have created an echelon of spirituality that if the Christians didn't live up to, they were disqualified. And this involved asceticism, severe self-discipline, probably based around what they ate, what they touched. Etc. We see that from 21, verse 21. It involved the worship of angels and an experience that brought mystical insight and wisdom to a different level. Folks, in Liverpool, something happened in the 1980s. There was a church that was planted, a Pentecostal church that was planted, and a thousand, a thousand people became Christians. It was like a revival. And people were being saved from nightclubs and there were bouncers outside and drug dealers Many, many, and the church grew to a thousand people within a year. Within a year. And the gospel was being proclaimed. Jesus can forgive you. And there was a move of the Spirit and people became Christians. But unfortunately, that particular church had no substance. The whole truth of the gospel was not being preached. It was shaky in lots of different ways. And as soon as the church grew to a thousand, within a year or 18 months, it had dwindled. The people who had come to faith we're still living in the reality of all the plausible arguments of what it is to live in the context of the city that they were living in. And they weren't able to square up the realities of what was occurring. And they were caught up in mysticism and in an element of, 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 of spirituality that there's a misunderstanding of what Paul is talking about, especially in 1 Corinthians, a total misunderstanding. And as soon as the church, as soon as the, as the church had grown, it's slowly. Now, within Liverpool, we have lots of people now who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s who got saved during that that have been wandering for years. Wandering for years. Wandering because of disappointment in the church, but also wandering is because they've never been able to establish themselves in the reality of the truth of the gospel. And there's just, because right at the early days, there was this sense that it needed to be more than just putting our faith in Christ. And sadly, many of them have moved towards this Jewish way of living as a Christian in the wrong sense. Even some of them have got themselves physically circumcised. They engage in the Shabbat meals. They engage in all the festivals. And as I engage with those who lead this, these are people that I've known for many, many years. They say this, Steve, you are missing out. You are missing out. See, each of these false teachings attack the truth of the gospel in saying this, Christ is not enough. But they are plausible in light of the culture's way of thinking. They seem to make sense in terms of a disciplined life for God. And after all the hopes of glory, and after all the hope of glory is a mystery. So the, so the more connected that we can be spiritually, the more, and the more spiritual experience we can have, surely that is a good thing. But what does Paul say to this, verse 23? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value. And folks, even if they explicitly don't reject Christ, their failure to affirm his soul sufficiency ultimately denies him. 
Therefore, they are of no value. These are the hazards that we face as Christians. These are the realities that we need to be aware of as we preach the gospel. Folks, we need to be aware that the temptation to preach something other than the sufficiency of Christ is real. We need to know that the pressure to add to the gospel is constant. Whether that is how we do a small group or how we, we pray, what our liturgical um, rhythms are like, what our music is like, the type of music that we sing, whether we abstain from certain foods and certain lifestyle choices. See, Paul, Paul's toil and struggle was that they mature in Christ and Christ alone. It was a toil and a suffering that he was prepared to engage in for the sake of the Christians because he knew that Christ was enough. This is our task. This is our task with our people. This is our toil. So in our lives and our leadership, we struggle and toil, trusting and knowing and preaching to our people that Christ is enough because they are being bombarded with plausible arguments both outside and sadly inside churches that proclaim Christ. Folks, let us not be trapped by what other people say and other people think. And finally, number three, let us know and preach the sufficiency of Christ, verses 9 to 15. Let us toil and struggle to see our people mature in Christ by knowing and preaching that Jesus is sufficient. Folks, we need to know ourselves that Christ is enough. And this will fuel our preaching and ensure that our toil is for the maturity of the people we love and serve. Paul is reminding the Colossians that they have everything they need in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we have everything in him also. Amen? Amen. Paul's response to these false teachings and these philosophies is not a clever thought or an apologetic gymnastics. No, it's the good old gospel, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Verse 9, what does he say? Look, in him the fullness of deity dwells. He is God. Within John's gospel, he's called the word, the outward expression of the inward thought of God for all eternity. He is God in flesh, the eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, infinitely holy son of God who took on human nature and lived among humanity as one who was fully God and fully man at the same time. And verse 10, we've been filled in him, he says. We share in the power and the authority of every rule and authority by virtue that we are united to him. We're raised with him. We are at the right hand of God, the pinnacle position and rule and authority. And Paul is saying, and, and we need to be reminded that the divine fullness is found in Christ who is God and we are filled in him, complete in him. We don't need any other teaching. We don't know to preach any other gospel. We don't need any other discipline. We don't need any other spiritual experience other than the filling that comes from him. Amen. Folks, it's like putting milk in good coffee. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? And our union with him makes us complete. Amen. Which means we have been removed from solidarity with Adam and his sin. And we are now in solidarity with Christ and his righteousness. Completely moved. Completely moved over. There is nothing else that needs to be done. And verse 11, it's through a circumcision not made by hands. 
but one that has been done by God, cutting off the sinful nature and setting us apart in Him. We don't need to go and engage in that because Christ has done enough. We are set apart and we have everything we need in Christ and everything that Christ has done is enough. And through baptism, verse 12, we identify with him in his death and we rise with him in newness of life because of his resurrection with full assurance that our sins have been forgiven, that we are now alive in Christ, verse 13, that the debt that we owe has been paid, the legal demands have been met, and this notice, this declaration, verse 14, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. This is signed, this is sealed, this has been paid, this has been delivered. We need nothing else because the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. It is sufficient. There is no requirement or obligation for, from us on any level at all. And folks, the victory of the cross and resurrection, verse 15, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he died and rose again, disarmed all the demonic powers, the elemental spirits, all that is at work in order for humans in their blindness to create traditions and other things that promise the fullness of life and deliver nothing. That Jesus on the cross has disarmed all the powers that have been stripped of all effective weaponry and power to accuse those who are in Christ before God. They have been put to shame. They are being paraded as weak, feeble, defeated. Jesus, like a victorious centurion, and they would have understood this, is walking along the street, and behind him, he has all those that he's captured, all those he's defeated. In some sense, this may be heretical. I feel sorry for the devil because he's trying his best, and he's never going to win. He's never going to win because he's been disarmed by Jesus who has triumphed over him. Try as he might. They can't blow us over. He can't blow us over. Try as he might, he can't penetrate. Because Jesus is supreme and he is sufficient. Folks, Jesus is all in all. And Jesus has paid it all. Amen? What Paul is saying to the Colossians is this. Jesus is supreme. And Jesus is sufficient. Sufficient for your life. Sufficient for your ministry. He is enough. And therefore, we are to hold fast to him. We are to preach this truth and nothing else to our people. Our church plants need to be built on this truth and in this truth. This gospel and this Christ. And if they are, we will all grow. We will all mature. We will all be established in the faith. And our thankfulness will guard our hearts as we walk through the trials and blessings of life, knowing and believing that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is enough. That Jesus is Enough. Period. Let's pray.